invite you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 42 this morning. Genesis 42. As we uh, come to uh, this passage of Scripture today, I have to let you know that if, uh, if at times throughout the sermon it appears that I'm crying up here, that might be the case. I had a little run-in with a contact lens last night, uh, late last night. It's not because I'm emotional, probably. Uh, it's just uh, working through that. Uh, I'm also kind of fighting something, you know, as a, as a mature man now. Uh, these, these words on my, in my Bible and on this page keep getting smaller and smaller. Uh, and I'm, I'm noticing that, and uh, the font is bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, so anyway, uh, we're looking forward to Genesis chapter 42 today. <clears throat> we're in the middle of the Joseph story. The Joseph story is the last major story of the book of Genesis. And uh, when we come to this point in the story, there's a series of interactions that he's going to have with his brothers. It's been uh, many years since he had seen his brothers. Uh, They think that he's dead. Uh, Instead, he's far from dead. We know from the last few weeks that he has ascended from a slave to a prisoner to the prime minister of Egypt. been many years, but I think the time has come for Joseph and his brothers to meet again, and one might say in our culture, they might say fate brings them together. Uh, We know better than that as born-again believers who uh, obey and follow the scriptures. We know God is bringing them together. God is directing their paths in such a profound way that they will come together in these moments. God makes their paths intersect through a series of three trips from Canaan to Egypt. As a matter of fact, I think the whole next part of Joseph's story from Genesis 42 to the middle of Genesis 47 is arranged around these three trips from Canaan down to Egypt. If you have time this week, you could be reading through those chapters, 42 through 47, and see if you can put the things in those three trips. It should be pretty straightforward for us. I think this is how Moses arranges us for us uh, as, we, as we read through the Joseph story. The voyage from Canaan to Egypt was approximately 400 miles. Uh, I googled how long it would take to walk this. Uh, I don't know if modern day is similar, but probably something like two or three weeks at least uh, to walk this in one direction. It's a long trip, but it was necessary because the text says that the famine had grown severe in all the world and that Egypt was the only place to find grain. So what I want to do today is look at Genesis 42 and the first trip uh, that Joseph's brothers make. This is a round trip journey containing two parts. The first trip from Canaan to Egypt is verses 1 through 25. And then the return trip is verses 26 through 38. As we look at the first stage of the journey, the departure uh, from Canaan and the peril that they meet in Egypt, I want to begin by looking at their departure. Look at verse 1, Genesis 42, verse 1, and we'll read down through verse 5. It says, When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? 
And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Okay, so as we start out the story here, uh, we're reintroduced to Jacob. It's been a few chapters since we've heard from him. Probably not too long for, uh, probably not long enough for many of us. Uh, Jacob is not a good father, and uh, we realize that again in this passage in a few ways. He, he starts out in verse 1 by rebuking the boys. That's why I take this phrase. Why do you look at one another? It's like, why are you just standing around? We're starving here. Quit looking at each other and do something. Unfortunately, those of us who are fathers know how easy it is at times to grow unnecessarily critical and destructive in our speech with our children. May may this not be true of us. I don't think he needed to say this. Why are you just looking at each other? I will say I'm, at least it's something at least he begins speaking up here. I mean, earlier, if you remember, in previous passages, his daughter is raped by a man, and his sons long for him to do or say something. Nothing. Now he decides to speak. Uh, although it might be because he, he's fearing for his own life and well-being. I, I don't know. But regardless, Jacob's dysfunctionality can also be seen in that he holds back one of his sons from going on the long trip. Benjamin, right? The only remaining son of his deceased wife, Rachel. And the text tells us exactly why he won't send Benjamin. He won't send Benjamin because he's afraid that harm might come to him. Now the word harm here is a significant uh, word in Scripture. It's used a few times in this passage and. And what I found this week is the only other times it's used in the Old Testament, it's used of injury that was inflicted on an unborn child. I think, which gives a testimony to the horrific nature of what he was afraid would happen to Benjamin. Perhaps he has flashbacks to what he thinks happened to Joseph when he was mangled and murdered by a wild beast. Now, one of the things I'll point out in the text here, if you're paying attention, you just think this is just like a normal opening, is the absence of Benjamin in this part of the story is very important for the rest of the passage. We'll, we'll pick that up a little bit later. Well, after the departure, uh, they run into peril when they arrive in Egypt, verses 6 through 25. They don't find a warm greeting there, but their, their time in Egypt starts with an accusation. Look at verse 6, and we're going to read down through verse 16. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who said to all the people of the land. Uh, and Joseph's brother came and bowed themselves before, them, before him with their faces to the ground. Verse 7. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where did you come from? He said. They said, 
from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We're all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you've come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are twelve brothers, the son of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. Verse 15, by this you shall be tested, by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. Okay. Starts with an accusation. Now I want to point out something important to you in the passage. This passage starts in verse 6 with Joseph's brothers bowing down before him. And that reminds him of the dreams that he had in Genesis 37. Do you remember these dreams? I want to read to you Joseph's uh, testimony about the two dreams that he heard in chapter 37. You can look there. In verse 7, first, dream number 1, middle of the verse. When Joseph is telling his brothers about the dream, this is what he said. He said, behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Remember this first dream of the sheaves? There are the sheaves that bow down to him. And then, since you're there, look at verse 9. In the middle of the verse, as he recalls the second dream, remember he had another dream. And the second dream is, behold, the sun, moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. Okay, so he has a dream about sheaves and about stars. Okay, and I'm bowing down to him. So in our text, Genesis 42, as the brothers bow down to him, In verse 6 there, I believe he knows that this first dream is fulfilled, the one with the sheaves. The second dream, however, is not yet fulfilled. You say, Pastor Brent, how do you know that? Well, there are ten, okay, we'll call them stars, that bow before him. Ten of his brothers have come. There's one that's missing, and, by the way, the sun and the moon aren't there either, which are probably representative of his father and his surrogate mother. Okay, They're not there either. Uh, It seems, then, that Joseph recognizes that Benjamin and eventually Jacob and his surrogate mother must come down to Egypt as well. Okay. I think that observation helps us understand Joseph's attitude and what he's doing in this passage. 
for years I thought that Joseph, you know, I kind of love the passage, right? He, he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. It could be that, you know, all the hair is shaved off and all that kind of stuff. He's, he's become, he looks like an Egyptian. They don't recognize him. And, you know, and, and then what does he do? He kind of sticks it to them, right? You know, so for years in my flesh, I kind of imagine myself, you know, if I were in this situation, doing something different. You know, let them have it. Let them soak in their guilt just a little bit. Let them, you know, they deserve every, every tremble, every fear. Give them a hard time. Well, I think instead of that, though, in Joseph's discernment and wisdom, Remember, he's a discerning and wise man. Even Pharaoh uh, observes this. In his discernment and wisdom, Joseph devises a way to get Benjamin, and perhaps later even the rest of his family there, so that God's second dream will come true. That's, by the way, what happens in the second and the third trips. So by the end of the third trip, this second dream uh, is fulfilled. But for the moment, Joseph's plan involves unnerving his brothers by accusing them of being spies. And he doesn't do that once or twice. He does it three times. Did you pick that up in the text? I highlight them in, in my passage, uh, in, in my uh, Bible here. Look at verse 9. Uh, verse 9, And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them, and he said to them, You are spies. Look at verse 14. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. Verse 16, end of the verse, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. He keeps like pushing. He knows it makes him uncomfortable. Uh, he just keeps pushing them in this way, and that leads them to immediately deny it. And what else do they do? They make some statements here, don't they? They say that they are all sons of one man. There are 12 sons, uh, 10 of them are there, one is no more, that's Joseph, and one is, the youngest is with their father, okay, and he's going to use that bit of information against them in just a second. Now, the other thing they say is they say, we are honest men, right, and that's when all of us, you like, we're like, we know as much as Joseph does here. We know they're not honest. You know, what about the myriads of lies that they've told their father about Joseph over the years. To borrow a famous idiom today, they sit on a throne of lies. They're liars. They're not honest men at all. Uh, and so uh, uh, we, we, we kind of pick these things up. To these objections, though, Joseph arranges a test. He'll confine them for some time and then allow one, of, one brother to fetch Benjamin to prove that the brothers are indeed the sons of one man. One man. Before they head back, though, uh, the brothers get uh, something perhaps they deserve. They get three nights in the clink, in prison. Look with me at verse 17. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined when you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the family 
famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Okay, so the brothers get to enjoy one of the finest Egyptian prisons uh, for only three days. Nothing like Joseph and what he had to endure, but three days. And then after thinking about this a little bit more, Joseph changes up the plan. Originally, he was going to let one brother go back. But now when they come out, he says, okay, I'm going to let all of you go, but I'm going to leave one, one of your brothers here. Okay. And uh, there may be some different reasons for that. Joseph says it's because he fears God. I think what that might mean is he recognizes that the need for his family back in Canaan is significant. There are over 50 people in that family back home. And if one guy brings you know, bags of grain, it's not going to be enough to sustain over 50 people and animals during this time. But I think there might be another reason why he does it this way, and that is to create a scenario that was similar to his, where one brother is vulnerable and needy and dependent on the others. Could you imagine the conversations at this point among these sinister brothers? I'm sure none of them trust each other. I'm not, I'm not going to be the one who stays here. You do it. You're the oldest. No, 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 I, I, uh, I'm not doing it. Because they know they can't trust each other. It creates this scenario. And then before they depart, we, we overhear uh, an important conversation. And we learn some more interesting details. Look at verse 21. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. (coughs) That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did not I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Now they did not know that Joseph understood them for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept, and he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bag with grain, replace every man's money in his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. At this point, the brothers begin to figure out what's going on. They still don't know about Joseph, but I think they're able to properly diagnose what's going on. This is God's punishment upon them. God is judging them for what they did. Their guilty consciences are pricking them here, and they know that they are experiencing distress. Did you pick this up in the text? It's very important. They're experiencing distress because of the distress of Joseph's soul that they heard when he cried out. In other words, they're getting exactly what they deserve. They heard distress. Now they're the ones getting distressed. Here we see the horrors of the guilty conscience. Their consciences were haunting them, reminding them of what they had done to their brother. You get the image of these brothers just kind of stuffing down, stuffing down those feelings, those thoughts, every time their conscience over the years kept bothering them about what they had done to their brother. But now those feelings just kind of force themselves out and bubble out into their conversation. Perhaps you know what that's like. Perhaps you've been stuffing down guilt, ignoring it for years. 
You feel guilty about a relationship problem like they're experiencing here? If you sinned in anger or lust or jealousy and you just keep stuffing it down, you say, it'll be okay. It's all right. We're, we're okay. But, but the truth is, it's not. That's a guilty conscience. That's a prompting that God gives you through something he naturally works into our human beings. Or from time to time, perhaps God convicts you about a private life-dominating sin, and you think, just ignore it, don't panic. The feelings of guilt will go away soon. They've gone away before. The preacher is going to change the subject any time now. I mean, look at the clock. He's only got another minute or two. Just hang on. And you just keep stuffing it down, stuffing it down, hoping no one will ever notice. Instead of doing that, it's time to come clean. It's time to repent. It's time to confess that as sin. It's time to seek forgiveness and reconciliation with your brothers or sister in Christ. Or distress might come upon you. For the distress you've inflicted on someone else. By the way, I love how Paul in the New Testament talks about the value of a clear conscience. When he's talking to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians, he said, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behave in this world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. Paul could call his own conscience as a testimony to the integrity of his actions. Can you do that? He tells Timothy, guard, guard that. The integrity of a clear conscience. Well, next, Joseph overhears this conversation, and he learns that his oldest brother Reuben wasn't really a part of the original plan to put him into slavery. And so Joseph leaves, he weeps, he returns, and he imprisons Simeon. Okay, that's an interesting piece as well. Perhaps Reuben should have been the one. He's the oldest, but he goes right, behind, right bypasses Reuben. Reuben didn't have a part in this, by the way, initially. And he goes to the second oldest, Simeon. The nine boys then return with the, their grain and uh, a little something else in their bags that they're going to find out later. Uh, that's stage one, okay? That's the first half of this text, from Canaan to Egypt. Uh, that leads to the second half of the chapter and the second stage of the journey. I've entitled this section, uh, Departure from Egypt and Distress in Canaan. Okay, so look in verse 26 at their departure. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed, and as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? Okay, I, I don't have to say very much here, but, but there are some important little observations we can make. The question they ask when they find the money after their hearts sink or fail them is, what, what is this that God has done? That question might sound familiar to you if you've been paying attention as we go throughout the book of Genesis. In structure and form, that question is very similar to a question we keep hearing 
throughout the narrative. I'll read a few of them to you. Genesis 3, in verse 13, God asked Eve, what is this that you have done? After she says, what is this that you have done? Or in Genesis 4, in verse 10, after Cain kills his brother, God accuses Cain by asking this question. What have you done? Or later on in Genesis 12 and verse 18, Pharaoh asks Abram, what is this that you have done to me? Okay, Very similar form. Instead of you, what is this you have done? They put God's name in there. What is this that God has done to us? They're asking accusingly, and they know that God is the one who's doing these things to them. Now, in some sense, I think they're right. God is acting decisively to bring about their judgment. But I would say they deserve every moment of this trembling. That leads to further distress in Canaan. I just want to read the rest of the passage with you and make some comments. So look at verse 29. When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, we are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. Verse 35, as they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to him, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol, or the grave. As you get back to Canaan, things are normal. And by that I mean dysfunctional. Uh, between Jacob and his family. Jacob hears what they say. He discovers with the boys all the money in their sacks, their hearts fail them, and he begins to withdraw himself. He won't listen to Reuben and his appeals. Seeing all the money in their sacks, I think Jacob thinks that Simeon is now likely dead because of the payment or the stealing of the payment. And he declares this. He says, Benjamin will not go down with you. Because, and if you pick this up in verse 38, because he is the only one left. He is the only one left. What a thing to say, right? Now, I I know he's referring to the fact that he is the only son remaining from Rachel who is left. But he makes a statement to his other sons. Imagine his other sons here, looking around at each other. Like, what are we? What are we? He's only concerned with Benjamin. This confirms to his sons that Benjamin is the only son that really counts. 
in the eyes of his father, Jacob. This elderly father, Jacob, then is obsessed with preserving this one last son. If anything happens to, ba- to Benjamin, Jacob says that he will mourn the whole way down to Sheol again. Last time we'd seen the word Sheol, which means the grave, or into the afterlife, was when he, he was mourning the loss of Joseph, and he's afraid this is going to happen again. And so this chapter ends this way with this elderly a withdrawn father clutching on to his favorite son, unwilling to trust the boys. I'm sure Jacob, at this point in the story, thought, or in his life, thought that every act of God's providence was against him. Have you ever thought that providence was against you? Do you think that your life is unraveling? your life is a mess all of your dreams and your ambitions are like a balloon that's popped and you just wonder how can all this be true that's what Jacob thinks perhaps in this low moment Jacob forgets all the good days of God's blessing and provision for him the years and years of faithfulness that God has extended not only to Jacob but before him to Abraham and to Isaac his fathers, and their families. He thinks God's providence is against him, but the truth is, if you back up and you look at the story, just the opposite is happening. God is working through this in a way. He's just about ready to restore to Jacob the treasure of his heart, Joseph. And Jacob has no idea no idea. He thinks God's providence is against him. He thinks he just keeps coming after him and coming after him and coming after him. Jacob will soon learn that God orchestrates the events of his life and of the whole world to accomplish his purposes. And men and women, although God is concerned with the whole universe, he uses all things, as the New Testament says, for our good. He's concerned for the entire universe, but he uses all things for our good to make us more like Christ. Sometimes God delays, and he does so to teach us more about what lies on the bottom of our heart. We're starting to see this with Jacob. We're seeing this with the brothers. And as that's being stirred, What comes out? I told you we should have never done that with him. Reuben. Jacob. You boys deprived me of one child. And another. I will never trust you with Benjamin. May we submit to God and to his providence and remember that his purposes and his plans for our life, are always best. And many times, he's working a grand narrative that we're not even aware of. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this reminder. This reminder, again, it seems that, to me, 
the theme of just about every sermon in Joseph's life is that you are sovereign and working. And Lord, you chose these biblical texts for us to work through. I don't know exactly, Father, how you're working in individual lives here today. But I do know that it might be very possible that here today, in this room, or listening to this video sermon, there could be believers who feel that you are against them, that all they get is judgment and difficulty and distress and loss. And internally, they are wrestling, wrestling, wrestling. Not only with their circumstances, but with the big question about, do you love them? Do you know them? Are you in control? Or perhaps even, do you exist? And so, Father, I pray that your word today, your word, as we've seen, would encourage my brothers and sisters. Perhaps there's someone here in our church who's like Jacob, who just wants to withdraw from everyone else to protect themselves. Lord, I pray that they be encouraged that in Jacob's story, you were just about ready to deliver his entire family, to provide for them in a miraculous way, and to bring back Joseph. We thank you, Lord. We know that we can trust you. And we pray that you'd give us the grace to do that this week as we attempt to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.